Hey there, and thanks for listening to the Modern Southern Gentleman Show. I'm your host, Dee Lauderdale. There aren't many places in the South that scream Southern or more uh, identified as Southern worldwide than Augusta National Golf Club, the home of the Masters. In this episode, we're going to talk to a, a player, a caddy, and a greenskeeper. Three guys who have a very specific view of Augusta National and playing in that tournament. Uh, the player is uh, Kevin Marsh. Kevin won the U.S. Mid-Amateur Tournament in 2005, which is how he got his invitation to play in the 2006 Masters. And in his interview, he's going to talk about staying in the crow's nest, which is a, a tradition of amateurs there at Augusta during the Masters. He's even going to talk about uh, which hole he thinks is the hardest, but the best thing he talks about is how well the club treats the amateurs who get invited to play. And remember, unlike other PGA events, the Masters remains an invitation-only event, and that keeps the field the smallest of any tournament, certainly of any major. There's less than 100 players get invited to play. So when Kevin got that invitation, uh, it was a big deal. The caddy was Kevin's caddy, Chris Bergreen. Uh, Chris had uh, caddied for Kevin during the Mid-Am tournament, and when uh, they won, um, Kevin wanted Chris to stay on the bag for uh, their time at Augusta. But you have to wonder, how was Chris going to be accepted by the other caddies? Because basically, uh, for some guys, he might have been taking a paycheck uh, that some other caddy could have gotten. But he has some uh, some great stories about how well he was treated by the other caddies and the members um, and just everybody at Augusta National. And he'll also uh, answer the question, did he figure out a way to smuggle uh, the, the jumpsuit that the caddies wear um, at Augusta? And then finally, the last interview is a, a guy named Mark Patterson. Uh, Mark worked at uh, Augusta for five years. Uh, on the crew that made that golf course look the way that it looked. And so if you've ever wondered, how did they grow grass that green? How do they keep that course looking so perfect, even though you know tens of thousands of people are going to trample the grounds during tournament week? Um, and just what's the work schedule like uh, to be on that crew with all of the pressure that happens during tournament week? I appreciate all three of these guys taking their time. Uh, it was a, a really fun set of interviews to do. But the thing that I came away from it was that each of these guys still held uh, Augusta National in reverence. Um, not because it's Augusta or it's the prestige of the of the tournament. They all still talked about experiencing true Southern hospitality while they had their time at the club. So sit back and listen to uh, this special edition where we talk about the Masters in Augusta National. So I'm on the phone with Kevin Marsh. Uh, Kevin lives out in Vegas, and, and I've known Kevin for a few years uh, from back when he was on the mini tour. Uh, Kevin, man, thanks uh, for being here. Good to talk to you again, bud. Yeah, my pleasure. No problem. Cool. Uh, just to help the men that are listening sort of get an understanding of you, give us a quick synopsis. Where did you grow up, kind of uh, how you started playing golf and uh, and that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, Santa Barbara, California. Um, ended up, uh, you know, working at a golf course there when I was, you know, 14 years old and kind of learned the game from some good players in the area and then uh, went off to college at Pepperdine and played college golf for a few years and then um, 
after graduating in 96, turned pro. Tried to play, you know, out there for a little while and uh, was playing on the Hooters tour and stuff, which is where I met you back in the late 90s and, and Chris. And um, and then, uh, you know, obviously gave it a little run for three years and never quite made it. So uh, circled the wagons and went back home and figured out I wanted to be in the real estate development business. And so I moved to Las Vegas in January of 2000 and been here ever since. Uh doing some real estate development and currently working for a really exciting company named uh, Discovery Land Company. And uh, we're doing a really cool high-end uh, private golf course community here in uh, Summerlin on the west side of Las Vegas. So things are going really well. And, you know, just got my amateur status back in uh, 2003 and, you know, didn't play much that first year and and then uh, started kind of getting into it in 04, 05 and you know, next thing you know, I'm playing 20, 25 tournaments a year nonstop. <laughs> and, and now it's, uh, you know, the real world that I'm working and uh, got a family. And so, you know, I'm not playing a whole lot now, but, um, you know, obviously this is a special week with a lot of great memories. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think people don't understand uh, uh, upper level, high level amateur golf. You play a lot, but everything's coming out of your back pocket. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, uh, you know, basically, you know, qualified for the U S mid am in 2004 and which was really exciting and made it to the uh, quarterfinals my first year, which got me exempt to the following year in 2005 and, um, went up to the honors course with, uh, Chris on the bag and we ended up getting all the way through and we ended up winning it and, um, just, you know, ever since then, it's just been, you know, I'm not real good at saying no to invites, especially <laughs> when they're to some of the best golf courses in the world. So, you know, just, you know, five tournaments turned into 10 to 15 to 25 pretty quickly. So did you play um, the British amateur? Yeah, I played in, uh, one British mid-am and two British amateurs. Yep. Yeah, so now we're we're going across the pond and and we're getting real serious about it. But I guess a lot of guys maybe that are listening don't understand how amateurs qualify for the Masters. So you won the Mid Am, but what are the other amateur tournaments that that qualify a guy to to get to play at Augusta? Yeah, uh, it's changed a little since 2005 when I won, um, but. Uh, Basically, the the winner and the runner up of the USAM gets in uh, gets an invite to the Masters. Obviously, the the winner of the Mid Am, um, the uh, the British Amateur Champion, and the uh, now the Asian Pacific Amateur and the Latin American Amateur Champion get in. So there's six this year. They used to have a tournament called the US Pub Links. Uh, which I think they eliminated two years ago. Um, so that when I was playing, the, the Publix champion was was, uh, was, in, was got a master's invite. So there were five of us the year that I played. Okay. And um, it's, it's evolved a lot throughout the years. I mean, back, you know, 25, 30 years ago, you know, all the Walker Cup players used to play. And, you know, I mean, a long time ago, you know, if you finished, I think, quarterfinals of the USAM got in. So, I mean, there used to be 25-plus amateurs that would play in the Masters every year. Um, 
which was a, a pretty high gonna, percentage because the Masters is a fairly is a much smaller field than, yeah, than the yeah, average PGA about, tournament. Yeah, there's only about ninety players in the field usually. You know, sometimes they get up close to a hundred depending on you know world rankings and you know how many PGA Tour winners there are in a year and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, it is. It's a very small field. Yeah, it's it's pretty heady company to to know that you've that you're getting in to play in an in, invitation only tournament that's filled with 90 of the best golfers in the world at that time. Yeah, I mean it was a it was a pretty uh special experience. I mean it's something that I can't quite think about it every day now, but almost <laughs> <laughs> for the first probably 4 or 5 years it was something you, you know you almost think about or something reminds you of it every day, you know. So but it still comes up a lot, and especially this week. Obviously, everybody's talking about it. Yeah, you know, so, it was funny. I had a tour to, today with a couple from Canada that they're talking about how cool the Masters was and everything. And they said, God, "Have you ever played that course?" And I said, <laughs> "Actually, believe it or not, I actually played the tournament." They they're didn't like, know, what? <laughs> dude. That's so, awesome. Yeah, they had no idea. Yeah, so it's kind of fun when you get to tell stories to people like that that just have no idea. Look, man, if, if I were you, I would wear my badge, my player's badge that I got. I'd wear it every day. I mean, I'd just be the most obnoxious <laughs> person in the world about it. Yeah, I know. Oh, my gosh. So from a uh, this is a question, as many times as you and I have been around, I've, I've never thought to ask you. How, I mean, how does it work? Do you get an email? Do you get a letter from them? I mean, how do you know you're in? I mean, what, what's the process look like? Well, I mean, you kind of know you're in, you know, because it's, uh, you know, it's so widely known, you know, for at the mid-am that, you know, that's basically what we're all, other than the USGA championship, I mean, you're kind of playing for it. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, you're literally within hours, you're on the master's website as a, as a participant. And, um, but yeah, the, the invitation, official invitation comes out um usually you know right around christmas time maybe a week before christmas and and uh so that's when you know you're you're officially in (laughs) i guess so yeah it's very traditional kind of old school they you know there's no no emailing and that type of thing it's uh you know kind of write a letter to rsvp that you're going to be attending and kind of uh so people you know it's kind of a tradition that they have and I'm assuming it's still the same 10 years later, but, um, yeah, so it's, you know, you kind of just let them know you're coming and, <laughs> and then you, uh, you know, start making arrangements for, you know, your visits and your, uh, in your tournament week. Yeah. That's a, that's a good lead into my next question. You, you don't just go the week of the masters. You're allowed to go beforehand, right. To make some visits. Yeah. Is there a limit to how many times you can go, how many times you can, you know, how long you can stay. Talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, that's arguably, you know, next to actually playing in the tournament, it's probably the best part of, you know, winning the mid am and qualifying for the tournament as, as an amateur, you, you essentially, you know, become a quasi member for, you know, four months or so before the event. And, um, yeah, they, they pretty much open the door. I mean, you know, I mean, you obviously have to use your, your best judgment on, you know, not abusing, you know, the, the invitation, but, um, yeah, they let you come pretty much whenever you want. And, um, 
Uh, you get to bring, you know, a guest that, you know, they don't get to play, but they can kind of walk around with you and stuff. And they, they really, uh, they really treat you well. And, you know, the, the membership really gets excited when there's one of the amateurs, uh, playing in the tournament that's, uh, you know, happens to be on property that day that they're there. And they always make sure to come over and introduce themselves and, you know, have a little chat and everybody just is excited for you and, you know, wishes you nothing but the best and, you know, offers their support and, and guidance if you have any questions or anything like that. So everybody's really helpful. It's a extremely friendly place um, and great membership, people that, you know, have a real passion for amateur golf. And it's, um, it's, a, it's a really, really special experience to get to play as an amateur. Well, I mean, that's so much baked into the, the, the amateur golf is, is baked into the DNA of Augusta National with Bobby Jones. I mean, he was yeah. the, the, the standard bearer for amateur mm-hmm. golf. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, <clears throat> just such a huge part of, you know, the game that unfortunately I feel, you know, has really kind of, you know, been been put on the back burner and, you know, kind of semi ignored, you know, obviously, you know, we're not even close to the to the same level day in and day out as, you know, the Jordan Speeds and the Rory McElroy's and Jason Days of the world, but you know, um it's it's I mean, I could argue that it's amateur golf is a is a much more important part of the game than the PGA tour. Unfortunately, you know, it's become such a, a money driven you know, thing like anything else, um, where, you know, the professional game gets all the, gets all the attention and, you know, but it's, it's a tough spot because, you know, they need people to watch TV and golf courses need people out there playing golf, (laughs) not watching golf. So it's kind of a a difficult dilemma that the sport is in. Um, but, uh, amateur golf is, it's just, that's what makes the masters so special is, is it's still a big part of, you know, the tournament, not typically part of, you know, Sunday afternoon coming down the stretch, you know, amateur golf isn't, but, you know, Monday through Friday, it certainly is. And then usually, you know, some of the college kids make the cut and, you know, it's, it's exciting to see them up there, you know, getting the low amateur trophy along the, uh, alongside the winner. Yeah. They, they make a big deal of that. If for people who are not golf fans, just tune in, uh, at, at, at about five o'clock Sunday afternoon and watch when they did the, mm-hmm. the trophy presentation, the, the low am, the low amateur guy gets just almost as much, uh, attention as the winner of the tournament does in, in many ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then a lot of those guys have gone on to have, you know, really successful, you know, professional careers. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just a cool thing that they do that, you know, very few other, you know, events do. I mean, USJ obviously, you know, has, you know, a lot of amateurs that, that end up qualifying for the U S open and stuff like that, but they're certainly not, you know, paid homage to like the, like the amateurs at the masters. So. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, one of the uh, traditions at the masters for the amateurs is uh, at the, on the top of the clubhouse, there's a, it's known as the crow's nest and, and a lot of amateurs stay there. Did you stay in the crow's nest when you were there? I did. Yeah. I stayed the whole week there. Some, most people stay at least, you know, one or two nights just to have the experience. And there were three of us that stayed uh, the whole week. Clay Ogden won the Pub Links that year and Dylan Doherty was the runner up at the USAM. And so the three of us stayed up there all week. And I mean, 
who gets to do that? I mean, you know, to be able to be lying in bed at, you know, early in the morning and you can already hear the roars, you know, people, you know, the crowd's already there and it's just really cool. And, um, be able to walk downstairs and, you know, have breakfast and you're, you're right above the champion's locker. So you're coming down the stairs and, you know, here comes Fuzzy Zeller or, you know, Palmer or Nicholas, these guys that are, I mean, it's just, you know, pretty cool. I mean, so yeah, I wasn't, I was definitely not going to pass that opportunity up to go, you know, I mean, I love my family, but... But <laughs> still, it's the crow's nest in Augusta National, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, yeah. you knew you were going to be around the family forever. Going back to Augusta, yeah, we never exactly. know when we get to go yeah. back. <laughs> yeah, and they're all they're all having fun, so I wasn't worried about that. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was pretty good. Now, from the yeah. pictures that I've seen of the crow's nest, uh, it would not be called luxurious. <laughs> no, I mean, it's... You know, certainly uh, tight quarters, and um, but you know, I mean, they treat you so well, and make sure you have you know everything you need, and um, but yeah, I mean, it's essentially you just you got a bed, and you got a you know couple drawers to put your your clothes in, and you know a little bar to hang hang your your golf shirts and your pants, <laughs> and that's about it. But you know what? What what more do you really need? You know. Well, I mean, I think that just reinforces the fact that you, you always hear about Augusta National, that it is a golf club. It is not a country club, you know, and they're just kind yeah. of focused on when the, uh, even when you read stories of when Eisenhower was alive after his, after he left the presidency, he'd go and stay at Augusta for a week or two. And, and that's just, you just played golf and, and then got something to eat and maybe played cards at night. And that's just what you did there. So there wasn't a need for a lot of other things, but I mean, man, when you think about the amateurs who stayed in the crow's nest, I mean, that's kind of crazy stuff, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's changed a lot over the years, but yeah, it's a, it's a really unique experience that, you know, obviously not that many people, in the world can say they've done, you know, I mean, even a lot of the top tour players have never gotten to do it, you know? Yeah. And, um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's certainly something that I'm, I have no regrets about, you know, it's, it was a, it was an awesome experience. One of the other things that people always talk about at Augusta is, is who they play practice rounds with on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So, uh, who'd you play your practice rounds with tournament week? Um, I got I played on Monday with um Chad Campbell who was an old friend of mine from when we were playing the Hooters tour and then Chad put together um Carl Pedersen and uh Rod Pampling. And then on Tuesday I played with uh Ben Crenshaw, which was a real treat and uh friend, an old friend of mine. Uh knew Ben real well so he set that up and then Brent Ben brought uh Olin Brown and uh, Jerry Pate. Oh wow! Uh, which so we had a really good time there, and then and then Wednesday was was just amazing. I got to play with Tiger and um, and Mark O'Mara. We played uh, nine holes, uh, a back nine in the morning. But now Most you and uh, nine on Wednesday. You and Tiger kind of go back to junior golf, right, in Southern California? Yeah, junior golf and and college golf as well. I'm a couple years older than him, but um, you know we played quite a bit of college golf together when he was at Stanford and I was at Pepperdine. Okay. So I, I saw him out there about a month before the tournament on one of my visits and chatted for a bit and asked him if, you know, he wouldn't mind if I played a practice round with him and he said, yeah. So we set that up for 
Wednesday and, and had a great time. And then uh, Wednesday afternoon, I played the par three tournament with uh, Tom Lehman, who was the Ryder Cup captain at the time, and Fred Funk. So, oh wow, it was, uh, it was really cool. Yeah, man you you had uh, you had quite the you went the gamut in your uh, in your practice rounds. I you know the one I know. Playing with Tiger's got to be crazy. All these people watched him and Omira, and, and and I get all that. But the one that really intrigues me is Ben Crenshaw. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's it like yeah, learning was, to read the greens from great. Crenshaw? Yeah, I mean, you know, playing with Tiger was great, but you know, I'm I'm just trying to kind of stay out of his way and let him do his own thing. So there wasn't a lot of chit chat going on out there. But Ben was just couldn't have been nicer. I mean, he just was so generous with his time, his knowledge, and and um, talked about how, you know, some of the green complexes and bunkers had changed over the years and new tees and all that stuff. Because the year I played was the first year they really lengthened the golf course a lot. So things had really changed. And, you know, it was just cool talking to them about, you know, um, all the little nuances of, you know, the the golf course and the slopes and stuff. So um, I needed to play about 10 rounds with him to really <laughs> to really feel like I learned anything, but, uh, you know, you're, you're just out there in awe that you're, you know, you're playing with, you know, one of the greatest players of all time and yeah. especially, you know, two time champion out there. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Arguably the, the best putter to ever grab a flat stick. Right? Yeah. 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 I've always heard he was just a, just a, exactly as you described and it's always nice to hear those uh those guys that are gentlemen that are passing that on to the to the next generations and and that they understand that they have the opportunity to do that and don't mind doing it that's always encouraging yeah yeah that's what's really unique about you know that tournament is you know those guys especially the guys that got to play the masters as an amateur you know they go on to have you know great careers like like he did um you know, are just so cool to the amateurs. I mean, they just, they really go out of their way to, to, you know, make our experience even better and make us feel welcome and comfortable. And, you know, um, it's just, it's just hard to describe, but you know, those guys get it because they were there once, you know, sure. even if it was, you know, 40 years ago <laughs> or whatever, you know, I mean, they, they realize how special it is and they realize that, you know, probably, you know, 95% of those guys that do get to play as an amateur, you know, probably it'll be their only time that they're ever getting to play, you know? Sure. So they, they really try to go out of their way to make it really, really special. So and Ben did that. And, you know, I got to spend some time with Sergio Garcia and a couple other guys that, you know, got to play as amateurs and it's just, it's just neat, you know, kind of, kind of a, uh, very select fraternity, the, uh, the amateur player. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's kind of cool to hear. All right, so we've talked yeah. about practice rounds. Let's get to the 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 thing that everybody's going to want to know. When you're standing on the first tee on Thursday, what are you thinking? <laughs> what are you feeling? Are you just hoping you don't snap hook it? I mean, what's going through your mind? Is Chris Hanji the driver? Yeah, um, yeah. I just you know, fortunately, I had a lot of people you know to kind of prepare and talk you know to me about you know how nervous I was going to be. So I kind of wasn't surprised because I was extremely nervous and you know I just remember not being able to really speak my mouth just felt like it was <laughs> full of cotton balls and then um I uh you know I remember looking down after I teed my ball up and I looked down at 
as I set up to the ball and I just said, thank God for these big headed drivers. Cause I don't know if I did a, <laughs> what, you know, one of those little persimmon headed <laughs> drivers probably whiff. But anyway, I just kind of aimed it, aimed it left and blocked it right down the middle of the fairway. I somehow got it airborne and hit it pretty good. <laughs> and, and as long as you got it airborne, that was airborne and somewhere inside the trees, right? Yeah. Somewhere findable. Yeah. It was good. So t- turned out pretty good. And then, uh, yeah, it's just it's just a really hard golf course. I mean, I actually felt like I played, you know, pretty good. I mean, I hit a lot of good shots and felt like, you know, putted okay. And it's just, but it's just so hard. I mean, you know, you feel like you hit a good shot into a green, and you know, you land it a yard long or a large yard short or something, and it you know ends up in a spot where you just can't get it up and down. You know, you just uh, you're in a really tough spot where you got to hit a perfect chip to hit it 10 feet, you know? Wow. And then so you're just kind of hanging. Hold on. Sorry. That's all right. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a really tough place to, you know, score unless you have a ton of experience and you know exactly where to miss it, you know? Um, you know, the golf course is actually pretty playable most of the time mm-hmm. um, during normal play. And then in the tournament, the greens just get so firm. Um, and you just, you know, the same five iron you hit a month ago just does not end up in the same spot. <laughs> you, know, you, just, you think you hit a good shot and now you're all of a sudden, you're just, you, you basically cannot make a par from where you just hit it. And you think you thought you just hit a perfect shot. And toughest hole on the course. Yeah. Number 11 to me, was, was, uh, just so hard. I mean, the first the year I played was the first year they really lengthened it. It was like 510 yards or 515 oh, or something. Par four. And I mean, you just, there's nowhere to hit it. I mean, you, <laughs> left is lost ball and there's trees, right? And so you're trying to just, you know, needle it down there. And then you got like a hybrid or a four iron and you just, there's nowhere to hit it. You know, <laughs> they just, you bail out short, right? And I think I made par the first day. And then the second day I hit it in the right trees and ended up making a double, but it's just, wow. it's just really tough. I mean, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them, but to me, that's, that was probably the, you know, if you had to make a par, that's probably the hardest hole in the course. To make a par, <laughs> you know? What, what do so, you think, uh, is there a secret to scoring well at Augusta? Um, I think it's just course knowledge. I mean, I think, it's just one of those tournaments. I mean, that's why you just rarely see guys play well their first time, their yeah. first masters, because there's just, you know, you don't, you just very rarely go for pins, you know, Thursday and Friday. Um, you just really got to play smart and take your 30, 40 footers and two putt and, you know, and, uh, and then try to take advantage of the par fives and, you know, make some birdies on par fives and, and then, uh, you know, hopefully make the cut and get to the weekend. And then those guys seem to go pretty well on the weekends, you know. Yeah. Uh, I think they, you know, typically, you know, make pins a little more accessible. I mean, I think there was, I saw some stat, you know, the first 10 or 12 masters the Tiger played in. He, he only shot in the 60s like one time on Thursday or Friday. I mean, he just very rarely, oh, wow. you know, he'd shoot, he'd shoot 70, 71, 72, like every time, you know, just because if you try to make birdies, you end up making bogeys. Yeah. You know, so you just kind of try to play the par fives, you know, three, four under, and then play the rest of the golf course, you know, even or one or two over, and, and you got a good solid round, you know. But 
if you go out there and you start trying, you know, I got a wedge or a nine iron into a certain hole and you, know, you just barely miss it, you're you're making bogey. <laughs> I don't care how good your short game is, you're just going to make bogey unless you make a 15 footer for par. So, gotcha. yeah, it's just it's tough. Yeah, really tough. Gotcha. All right, last question. We'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Uh, got any picks for the week? I really like Jason Day. I mean, if he if he can stay healthy, you know, um, you know, his back's been giving him some problems, but I would think that he's just such a streaky player, and he's just on a roll right now. Yeah, and um, yeah, he's had a good chance to win the last couple of years there. I think you know, I think he's going to be really tough. Um, you know. I'm, good friends with Ricky Fowler. I'd love to see him break through. I mean, he's my, he's my, my, the pick that I hope wins. Um, <laughs> he's, certainly, he's certainly in my top five. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, there's so many of these guys that, you know, are so good now that he, it's just, none of them would surprise me if they win. I mean, he picks Danny Willett or any of these guys, <laughs> you know, Andy Sullivan. I mean, there's so many good players from all over the world now that, you know, they just, you know, and they're also young and really, really good. You know, so yeah. um, young and no yeah, fear. If I had to pick one guy. I'd pick. Uh, I'd pick probably Jason Day. That's cool. So. Well, we will. Uh, we'll review this and and see how your pick did. Hey, man, we're going to let you go. I, I know you're just getting in from work. Uh, uh, Kevin, I appreciate your time. It was really cool. And uh, the next My time pleasure. you're out here, uh, we'll grab Chris and Joey, and uh, we'll go knock it around somewhere. All right, I'd love it. That'd be great. All right. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, so we've talked with a player uh, at Augusta National, and now we're going to talk about the other really important part of a team uh, when a golfer's playing at Augusta National, the caddy. Uh, we're going to be talking with Chris Bergerin, and just full disclosure, he is my nephew, so uh, there is uh, – there is a long relationship here, obviously, but uh, uh, Chris was on the back for Kevin back then. And uh, so, Chris, how you, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, man. How are you? Good. I appreciate you doing it. So let's just kind of give the listener some context. How did, how did you and Kevin first meet? Um, we met in um, 96, right when I graduated from, uh, from Auburn. Um, Kevin was playing on the Hooters tour and, uh, there was an event there in Decatur uh, at Point Mallard. And, um, I had played there a bunch and, and was, uh, playing in a pro-am and actually he was actually the pro that was in our pro-am and, uh, we just kind of hit it off and, um, he had just graduated from Pepperdine and, um, I think we were the two youngest guys in the group and, um, we just kind of hit it off. And after we played, he asked me if I would caddy for him there during the tournament and, and I did, and I think he did fairly well uh, that weekend. And then just uh, the two other years that uh, he was on it, when he came back into town, I caddied for him there. And we just really, just like I said, we hit it off and really became really good friends uh, at that point. So um, we've stayed in contact. We went through a period of uh, probably six or seven years where we didn't see each other, but, you know, communicated by phone and stuff. And then, uh, he called me back uh, in 2005 and was playing. He had got his amateur status back and was playing in the Mid-Am um, tournament that was in Chattanooga at the Honors Course up in Udawah. And um, he asked if I'd go up and caddy for him and told him, sure, no problem. And, um, and you know, we spent, I guess, six amazing days up there and uh, he ended up winning that event and 
which ultimately got us to uh, to go to the Masters. That is so cool. Yeah, I, I, I remember those days. So, I mean, it just was kind of weird. Then the next thing you know, uh, you guys are in the Masters, and, and what most people don't understand is the amateurs get to make visits kind of almost as many as they want within reason leading up to the tournament. So you guys yeah. head over to Augusta before the, before the tournament. So kind of talk a little bit about your, your impressions. The first time you're driving up Magnolia lane. Yeah, it was, that was crazy. I, I that's one of those times where you know that you have dates that you'll always remember in your head, but it was January the 6th, 2006. And, uh, we, <laughs> The company I worked for, um, we had our little agent kickoff meeting in Birmingham. And uh, after I left the meeting, I drove over to Augusta and uh, you know, I was calling Kevin on the way over there. And, and I didn't know. I didn't know that they had access to the you know, to the golf course prior to the tournament. So it was, uh, I guess that was my Christmas present that he gave me that year. And I, I called right before I got into Augusta, and I said, well, you know, where do you want me to meet you at the hotel? He's like, no, just come on to the club. Just go to the guard shack, and uh, I've got your name down. Don't worry about it. And I said, oh, okay. And um, I remember pulling up, and, you know, security guard comes out and asks me my name, driver's license. And uh, and then he was like, you know, Mr. Marsh is waiting on you at the club. Just, you know, go through the gates, and somebody will pick you up up there. And, and it is. It's um it's a surreal feeling. You know, you always hear people talk about Magnolia Lane and first time you see it, you would think you'll see it in the daytime, but you know, I saw it at, at eight o'clock at night. And, you know, so I didn't really see anything, you know, driving in, but, uh, we met there and had dinner that night and, uh, it was Kevin and I and one other member, um, there at the club, uh, Ray Robinson. And we were the only three guys sitting in the dining hall. And, and that night I think is when, you know, you kind of sat back and you think everybody would be stuffy at a club like this. And, um, man, it was the most down to earth person that, you know, is probably worth, you know, more millions than I could probably ever, you know, think of. And, and just, I mean, he knew all about Kevin, you know, he knew all about, uh, what Kevin had done. And, and that was the thing that just kind of impressed me that there were so few people there, um, playing or, or visiting for the weekend but it was like every staff member knew exactly who you were where you were from what you were about and you know it was just true southern hospitality at its finest for sure and um yeah we had a great day i still got a picture on my refrigerator of uh of me on 18 hitting the drive off the tee box and uh you know and it's just you know every time you go by there and you look at it it's always a memory that you play a golf course or you get to walk on a golf course in January that's no bleachers, no patrons, and it's just as green in January as it is right now that you see on TV. So wow. Pretty cool experience. Yeah, I guess so. So you guys stay a few days, you're uh at the course, then we come back, we kind of fast forward now it's it's tournament week and and suddenly it's 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 a real thing. So as a caddy who do you get your instructions from? I mean, just kind of the basic stuff. I mean, how do you know where do the caddy, where to go to get dressed? Where do you park? Where do you eat? I mean, what what's the life like for a caddy uh, at the Masters? Yeah, I always kid Kevin. You know, he uh, I didn't realize when he won the Mid-Am what all it meant. He just, you know, I remember him saying, you know, hey, we'll be in Augusta. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, well, just give me a ticket because I want to watch you. And, uh, and he was like, no, 
you and I are going to be, you know, at Augusta. And, and I don't think it really hit me, but I got a letter from, uh, from the president of the club telling me how to dress, uh, what color shoes not to wear, what they preferred, always keep your hat on. And, you know, it was real military, you know, like instructions. And, um, I remember when we got there, uh, when we were there in January, the caddy that he had, um, uh, we were going around and he was telling me, you know, hey, just, you know, look for Ray's Creek. Everything breaks toward Ray's Creek. And I remember taking notes in, in my yardage book and just, you know, and I was thinking, oh, what are you doing? I mean, yeah, you're not a caddy. And, you know, and I think the realest part of it was, you know, he's probably not going to win this tournament, but what if he did, you know? And <laughs> so, um, and, you know, and I can remember the practice rounds, you know, in, in January and February when he was over there, you know, he played very well. And, and I think, you know, you, you start thinking that, um, you know, man, this, this could be something special because the way he won the mid-am, you know, was unheard of, you know, he, I think it's still a record today, you know, in amateur match play history, winning 10 and nine. And uh, I think which, it's the worst defeat. And yeah, I think still is a record. And uh, which, for those of you, you know, who don't play golf, that's equivalent to a fifty-six to zero beating in football. <laughs> and you know, and so we get there, and uh, you know, and I listen to this, these caddies and everything, and they were they thought it was pretty cool. They they knew Kevin's story, and 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 the kind of underlying thing behind that. Um, there's never been a mid-am to, to make the cut at Augusta. And, um, and I don't think one has until this day. And so, um, they all kind of have side bets when they see these mid-amateurs and amateurs come in and play, uh, two or three, I mean, two or three months before the tournament, they start having pools that, Hey, I think this guy will make the cut, or I don't think this guy will make the cut. And, uh, and I remember every caddy over there kept saying to me, you know, Kevin has the game to do it. He'll be the first guy to do it. And so, you know, it, it kind of makes you feel good. You think, man, this is, you know, really going to be a special, you know, special year and a special time with somebody that, you know, you obviously care a lot about. Um, but, yeah, you get the instructions, and I remember getting over there, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking we'll play practice rounds, and it'll probably be with some people that Kevin may know. And, um, you know, I'm just thinking, you know, do I rate the trap right? Do I do this right? And, you know, don't do anything stupid. And, um, and, you know, you realize that when you kind of get inside the ropes, it's, you know, if you've played golf before, it just, I guess things just start coming natural. And, um, the practice rounds, um, you know, man, I guess you just start, you know, kind of starstruck a little bit, you know, seeing guys that you see every weekend on TV and, um, you know, and just, it just, it becomes, uh, I guess the real part of it doesn't really set in, I think until, you know, Thursday morning, but, uh, but yeah, they, uh, you know, you got there. I just remember, you know, some of the caddies say, you know, Hey, you know, the bunkers or, you know, make sure to leave the rakes here. Um, uh, you know, don't walk in anybody's line, same stuff that you would hear, you know, at a high school level. And, yeah. um, but, uh, we, um, it, it was, it's, 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 it's unreal when you, you go in and you think, well, I guess I'll be dressed, you know, when I come into the gates and I'll do this. But, uh, you know, the caddy house they have, uh, which I think it's a lot different now than when we were up there, but the caddy house reminded me of like an old gym locker from like junior high school <laughs> and, uh, you know, the metal lockers, um, 
you know, they have a caddy master that's there, and, you know, you walked in, and, you know, they, you know, you gave them your name, they knew your golfer, and um, had your uh, jumpsuit sitting there with the name already on the back, and, um, you know, and they had food, you know, you ate breakfast, lunch, dinner there, if you wanted to, with the other caddies, and uh, that was kind of your place, and then it was, when it was your time, or your player is ready to go to the tee, to the practice range, you know, they would radio down that, you know, Mr. Burgreen, uh, Mr. Marsh is ready to go to, uh, you know, the first tee and I mean, to the, to the tee, but I mean, the practice area. And so he would do that and, and ship and everything. And so, uh, you know, instruction wise, um, I, I can't say enough about the guys. They, they treated me just like I was one of their own. And, you know, they probably, you know, I call somebody probably a paycheck there for, you know, for a week. Sure. Uh, but, but you know, it just—it's—it's it's so amazing. I think that's the thing that most people don't realize, and um, is—it's really true to what Bobby Jones, I think, wanted that place to be. Not only the club, but the tournament itself. But they cater so much to amateurs that um, I mean, that's why you know they say it's a tradition unlike any other, and it truly is. I mean, it is. Um, I just seen the way that they treated pros and i'm not saying they don't treat them nice or anything because they do they're very respectful of everybody but an amateur over there just gets treated a little bit different i think and uh and I, it's just a cool thing to see especially when it's you know one of your closest friends and um that you think a lot of and it's like they treat him just like you would if, if he was in here from vegas you know having sweet tea in madison alabama i mean that's just how they you know treat everybody and that that's probably the biggest thing that I took away from it is, you know, it's, it is a tradition unlike any other. And, um, and those are the things that just really, I don't know, I still hold on to. And I probably didn't realize it that much at that time because like you say, everything is fifth year wide open and you're just trying to catch everything, sights and sounds and everything. And then a couple of years after it's, that you're not there and you watch it on TV, you start really reflecting on, man, that was pretty cool that we got to do that. Or that's a pretty neat experience. And, you know, and, well, you, and it is, but it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. There's, there's a, you know, Augusta has all kinds of traditions. Uh, one, the one that most people know is that the only person that's allowed to wear their green jacket off of the grounds is the defending champion. But the caddies also have a tradition in that, those white coveralls are not allowed to leave the course. That's true. Yeah, I, I tried to. Uh, I tried to roll mine up, and they they uh, they didn't let me put that. In the back. <laughs> they so, uh, they they did a, a an inventory <laughs> check on you. <laughs> a oh. little bit. We uh, it was you know, and I guess it's just you know. I remember when Kevin won the mid am. You know, I kept my bib and and actually have it framed in my house now, and it's uh, a great conversation piece. But uh, you know, I got to thinking man, this may be the only time this ever happens or, or maybe we'll come back in a couple of years or whatever. And so I had peeled his name off and uh, the badge and everything. And uh, they came over there and they got it because they apparently at every tournament, they do a uh, like a lockbox type thing to where they keep all the uh, all the participants and all that stuff. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of their memorabilia. You oh. know? So I guess it's somebody that's in, in that tournament that one day – you know, maybe in a Hall of Fame or something that um, it's there. So it's pretty cool how they do preserve things on the backside at every tournament that you probably, you know, the common person just doesn't see or doesn't think about. But, um, yeah, they're, um, 
They may let you walk out with a pencil or a key, but that, that's about all you're going to walk out with. So. Well, one of the things that people who have have walked the grounds talk about uh, how hilly it is and how TV doesn't do it justice. So, a, as a caddy, what was what were some of the toughest parts to walk with a bag strung over your shoulder? Um, you know, I, I don't think you realize how it's going back from number nine, uh, how uphill number nine is. Um, number seven, to me, is probably the toughest golf hole on the golf course. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, one, you know, here recently, you know, just with the added coverage, you get to see it. But seven probably has one of the more difficult tee shots. And then, I mean, it is a straight uphill second shot and uh, into a green that's really going away from you. Um, people don't realize how tough that hole is. Um, yeah, it is. It's pretty hilly. The front side and the back side, I think, is more, you know, people that go over there during practice rounds and, and whatnot and in actual tournament, you, you get to walk the course and you realize, you know, man, this course is pretty hilly, but um, it really is. I mean, it, it's as much on the front side as it is, it is the back. Um, I think the toughest thing that probably you don't really realize is the undulation in the green. Okay. Um, you kind of get a glimpse of that on Saturdays and Sundays, usually on Sundays when the greens get really fast. But um, there's, it, for people that do play golf or if you hadn't played golf, but that's really a golf course when you say if you take a green and you divide it into four quadrants. There's three quadrants you don't need to hit if the pin's placed. If the pin's in one quadrant, there's three that you just you just have to mark off, and it may not necessarily be the quadrant that the pin is actually placed in. Um, and that that's probably the thing that jumped out at me the most that that is the most difficult thing about that golf course. And when when you have guys like Steve last year that played the way that he did and as well as he did, and when people are putting the ball very well for four days over there, it's um. It's more impressive than what probably most people really realize because you got to be able to do that very well to be successful up there. Yeah, that that was kind of that was Kevin's part. Uh, one of the things he said was that you know it's just it's just a hard golf course. Uh, it, it just is. So, do you have one memory that sticks out from your time at Augusta? Well, I, I paid. Uh, <laughs> Day one was uh, was not uh, not what we expected. Uh, we played decent, but I just remember on day two through the first five holes, if, I, if memory serves me, I think he was full under through the first five on Friday morning. Wow. And, yeah, I mean, he made a bomb on one. Uh, we played with Craig Stadler and Padre Carrington, and at the time, Padre had not won any majors. And... Um, and, you know, and he was the guy that you, you know, I remember Thursday walking around thinking, God, I bet this guy shot 80 today. And, you know, he shot two under, I think. He just, mm-hmm. you know, it's just one of those guys. We're just sort of playing with these two guys. And I think Padraig had, um, he had might have made like an eight-footer for Birdie. And, um, no, no, he, he he hadn't put it in yet. Kevin probably had about a 30-footer for, uh, for Birdie on one, and he makes it. And the play, place just went crazy nuts i mean just erupted you know and and i think you know and then two he birdied two the par five made a great shot at three and i think he birdied three 
he parred four, and then on five, he made birdie on five, and then got to six. And I'm sitting here in my mind thinking, man, we've got this thing now, and I think Kevin's down to a two-over par. And, you know, I know that he's had some really good holes and some history on the backside with the par fives. And I'm thinking, you know, man, we've got a shot. To, you know, he can get in the clubhouse at one over, two under, or two over, you know, we've got a chance to make the cut and, you know, everything be great. And the probably the memory that, that Kevin probably doesn't, <laughs> doesn't want to remember, but it's the one that he was so amped up on six. And I think we had been hitting six iron into that part three pretty much all week in the practice rounds. And he grabbed a seven iron and I mean, blistered it. And he hit probably six inches short of where he needed to hit and spun the ball all the way off the green, and he made double bogey. And at that point, it was just like, man, <laughs> you know, everything <laughs> was going so good. And and I think that's, that's you know, that's a memory that I think about. You know, every time I see six come up, and if the pin is back right of just how tough that shot really is. But the biggest memory that I have is, is again, all the people that we met, um, just how I was treated. I can remember eating breakfast with, you know, Mickelson's caddy, um, Angel Cabrera's caddy, uh, Ernie Els' caddy. I remember the four of us sitting there swapping the USA Today around and eating breakfast, and I'm sitting here thinking, man, you know, last <laughs> week this time I'm eating, you know, a Pop-Tart in the middle of a cotton field in, in Madison, Alabama, and here I am with, you know, guys. And But, you know, the way people, you know, treat you over there, and, you know, and it truly is a tradition, you know, unlike any other, just because I, I think it's, it, 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 you know, every other major swaps a venue every year. Mm-hmm. And this is one venue that's at a constant place. And that golf course and that club, you know, kind of does things the way that they want to mm-hmm. and how they want to. And, and that's not an arrogant way. And, and it, I think from an outsider, you may think that, you know, I bet those guys are stuffy or whatever. And, and I've been members of two golf clubs and um, great people and, Great times, played lots of rounds of golf at both of them. But that is the best club that I've ever been at as far as the way I've been treated. And and I think that's, if you really just want to know the things that, that when somebody says Augusta or I think about Augusta National or, hey, they're not going to allow this person to play or they don't want this member in, it's in the past, you know, I probably thought, man, they're probably pretty arrogant. But when you're over there and you see how – they just keep their tradition and everything so sacred that I don't think most people really get that. Uh, I think the fan of golf probably, you know, hopes that that's the way that it is, but it it truly is. And it truly is, um, you know, they do their thing the way they want to and and good for them for doing it, but they do it in such a way with so much class that um, I don't think that term will ever change. And, um, and I don't think that club will ever change. And that's, it's really good, and I'm just really glad it's part of the South. That is cool. Man, good memories, Chris. Uh, I appreciate you you sharing that. Uh, this is going to be a fun series. We got you, we got Kevin, and uh, then the last interview is going to be a guy who worked over there and was responsible for making it look that good. So uh, it's all been good stuff. Man, Chris, I appreciate your time, buddy. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you.
So we've talked to guys who uh, have played. We've talked to guys who caddied. But if you've ever watched the Masters, you you had to have wondered how in the world do they keep it looking that good? I mean, it, it, there's not like a blade of grass out of place. Well, in this part of the interview, we're going to talk with uh, a guy I grew up with named Mark Patterson, who is uh, currently the superintendent at Huntsville Country Club. And uh, Mark has been working with and uh, the folks at Augusta over the years. <clears throat> Pardon me. So he has agreed to come on and ask some questions. So uh, what's going on, Mark? Good to talk to you, buddy. Hey, it's good to be here. I uh, It's good to be back in North Alabama. Been down in South Florida for a while, down in the heat and snowbird world. And it's good to be back in Alabama, go Alabama. Now you're back in God's country. Mark has a, a long uh, history in doing this. He's a Mississippi State guy who, uh, if you don't know, uh, it's a program that everybody wants to go to to learn how to do turf management. So uh, let me just get you started, Mark. Sure. Here's kind of the first question. What makes turf management different at Augusta from what happens at other golf courses? Uh, I'm going to say resor- resources, D. Uh, you know, at, at my property here, in, in any property that I go to post Augusta, the fir- one of the first questions are, that are common questions, and and you don't know if they're being serious or not. They say, "So you can make my place look like Augusta National?" <laughs> well, yeah, I, I sure can. You know, I have the ability to do that. The challenge is, do you have the resources? Um, what we do? Um, excuse me a second. I'm standing in my maintenance shop, and the air compressor just came on. Let me move. <laughs> okay, no sweat. Um, it's really windy out today, so I've, I've got to uh, I got to get moved around so you can hear me. That'll be fine. Um, what makes it different? Excuse me one second. I'm going to be unavailable for about a half hour. Uh, sorry about that. That no was sweat. my assistant. Um, <clears throat> what makes it really different, as I said, is resources. Just just a great example. Um, uh, and I use this term very very vaguely. Uh, it costs the same amount of money to manage turf grass in a one-foot swath on any golf course in America or anywhere in the world. Okay. It's how far you want to go outside of that one-foot swath or your owners or your membership or your financiers. It's, it's, it's really dependent on how far they want to go. And uh, Augusta National goes all the way out, all the way to the pine straw, all the way to the trees, all the way to the azaleas. It's just the um, effect of detail and, and, and aesthetics. Yeah, uh, the and turf grass is – go ahead. No, and obviously they, their checkbook doesn't have a bottom. Well, actually it does. Oh, really? Um, they have they have a finance department that is unsurpassed. Uh, you know, people here, you know, it's Disney budget, blah, blah, blah. It, it is. It's – it, it's not. It's not that they they can't just frivolously spend money. Okay. There's a lot of research that goes into what happens at Augusta National. Brad Owen, the superintendent, Marsh Benson, the director of agronomy, and then that entire team researches everything to the nth degree before any decision is made. So, yeah, money is spent, but it's it's researched in in detail before anything is spent frivolously. I, I use the term a lot in golf course maintenance management, dumping over dollars to pick up shiny dimes. Okay. Uh, a great example is here where I'm at. When I got here, the maintenance operations uh, were pretty bad for a couple of years. They were spending some money 
on some things they didn't need. I mean, a, pr- a prime example, when I first got here, there was two tons of fertilizer sitting in a bag that so I was told had been here a year. Oh, my God. Well, last time I checked, D, fertilizer don't work while it's still in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it, it's those type of things. Yeah, you know, the the money is, is spent. There's a lot of money spent, but it's spent well, and it's it's very detailed in how things are done. It's very detailed on how, where it's spent. Uh, they're not just going to say, well, "Let's buy two hundred thousand dollars worth of fertilizer." No, not going to do that. Right. Let's let's put uh, a great example. <clears throat> I forget the year, but uh, had a heavy rainstorm in the practice rounds. And there's a there's a system I have them on my greens here at Huntsville Country Club called Subair. Okay. What Subair does is it connects to the drain lines underneath the greens, and uh, if it gets hot or wet or whatever, you can vacuum the water out of the soil profile. Okay. It helps dry the greens out. Well, I want to say it was 2002 or 2003. Uh, one of the members' wives or friends' wives or somebody slipped in the crosswalk. Mm-hmm. And broke her hip. Oh no! Uh, during a practice round, and I that summer, we were putting sub air in all the crosswalks. Oh wow! Uh, safety. I you know we we had the ability patron. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people that run through Augusta National in a period of a week. Um, safety is number one concern. You know, if it if it if it rains and Mother Nature throws a curveball at you. We after that we had the ability to suck water right out of the soil <laughs> to dry it up. Wow! So, uh, so what years were you working with Augusta, or have been working uh, with Augusta? I guess I'll put it that way. Two thousand, two thousand five. Okay. Now, one of the things that people may not know, uh, unlike Huntsville Country Club or just maybe your average country club, Augusta's not open year round. Is that correct? That that's correct. The um, the first round, or let's let's start in the summer. The last round of golf is the second Sunday in May. Okay. After that, the golf course, the clubhouse, everything is shut down from the the third Monday in May until the second Monday in October. Wow. The golf course is closed for several reasons. One, in order to have perfection in bent grass greens, which for those of you who don't understand bent grass versus Bermuda grass, um, <clears throat> bent grass is a cool season grass. It's very challenging to grow bent grass in this climate. Now, as the crow flies, Augusta is a little further south than here in Huntsville, uh-huh. and, and they're a little lower in elevation, so it's more challenging for those guys. Um, so in order to keep perfect bent grass greens and other things, they decide and they have years ago just to stay closed all summer. Okay. Well, so what do they do during the summer when there's no play going on? Well, that that's where I came in. My, uh, my position as director of golf course development was we, uh, we would take six, six greens every year and rebuild them. Now, wait a minute. When you say uh, rebuild them, I mean, do you mean just reshape or take them down to grade? Take them down to grade and put them back together exactly like they were. Oh my gosh! To the millimeter. How do you? How do we, you? I mean, is there just you got some whiz bang, uh, super accurate tool to do that, or? 
that well, just no, experience? Well, it's, no, it's, it's, a, it's a team. I mean, we have uh, subcontractors come in. Uh, C.R. Sanders is a longstanding company that, that does the work there. His son, Earl, is just a genius when it comes to collecting a group of people that know how to take golf courses and just do amazing things with them. Um, but a putting surface, a USGA putting green is 12 inches. If you look below the turf grass, it's 12 inches of what we call greens mix, which is on a normal situation is 90% sand and 10% peat moss blended. Okay. When you get below that, you have, um, below the 12 inches is four inches of a USGA approved peat, peat gravel, just some kind of small gravel. And then the subsurface of the green is he actually has the shape of the putting surface, just not in detail. And then within that is um, four to six inch drain lines that, as the water perks through that twelve inches of sand and gravel, it you know gets into the pipe and gets off the greens. Wow! Um, so that that gets ripped out every you know every time the greens being re- and of course there's different variables how you rebuild greens. Uh, for example, here at Huntsville Country Club. In 2006, they took off the top four inches and took off all the grass, replaced the top four inches of soil, and then reseeded them. Okay. Which helps. That that gives you about eight or ten years of, of decent putting surface, which we are well beyond that here. <laughs> um, but um, the way they do it at the Nationals, they, they strip it down what we call cavity cut. If you look at it in the summer, it's just stripped all the way out, put it all the way back together, and then... They measure it in a grid system, one-foot grids. They'll go out with a laser level, and they'll take numbers at one-foot centers. Okay. And then when everything's put back together, it has to match that within three millimeters. Wow. So so basically, so basically, those of us who love to look at Augusta National on TV would probably cry if we saw it during the summer with, with all the work being done to it. Yeah, I mean, I can't go over detail as, well, as sure. far as what it does look like, but it, it's... It's pretty, it's pretty different. <laughs> so what you see on TV is bent grass and, and well manicured uh, rye grasses, well manicured turf grass. You know that, mm. that it is is properly maintained, properly fertilized, properly irrigated, uh, and that, and that's what the members see. The members see that from October to May. Wow. wow. Um, and then you know summertime comes. It's, you know, just like out here on Monday and Tuesday this week, uh, we were closed for airification and, you know, I had greens torn apart. And of course I do post a lot of things on Facebook, but, um, some people just don't really need to see what we're doing. (laughs) All right. So let's, let's talk about tournament week. So today is the final practice round and, and the part three contest when the rounds are over, when the competition rounds are over, or I guess just any round during the week, what happens as that last golfer finishes hole number one and number two all the way through to the to the day of that, uh, to the play is finished that day? What happens at night and the next morning to get the course ready for play? Well, Brad and his team and, and just, and, and you know, Brad's the superintendent, but there's so many other integral details of, of, of management there. It's just so hard to describe, but it's it's a twenty four seven situation. Okay. Um, during tournament, a week before the tournament, and, and not really a week before. I mean, Augusta National is so well maintained outside of the tournament 
Mm-hmm. And, and and this this entire maintenance operation is such a well-tuned machine, it it really only ramps up during Masters Week. And and so to answer your question, let's say for example, when the last guy rolls through today on one, uh, about about the time they hit three or four, the team will start on one. Okay. They'll they'll mow everything. No tees, fairways, roughs. Detail, edging, greens, roll, they'll double cut greens, they'll double roll greens, they'll do all kinds of unbelievable 200 people maintenance type stuff. Gotcha. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And it's done every day. It's done. The shift starts at 2.30 in the morning, uh, runs till tea time start. Usually the, the, the last few guys get off property 8.30 to 10. Uh, they go eat, rest, and then back at it at 3.30, 4.30 330, 430 ish. So it's just, there's no, there's a little sleep for that crew during uh, tournament week. Absolutely. It, I mean, it's, um, <clears throat> the reason I don't do it anymore is, is I'm old and, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I still like to partake in a cold beverage now and then. So, <laughs> so when I go over there, if I work from, 2.30 in the morning till, say, 9 in the morning, and then go watch golf, try to get a little rest in between, and then go back at it at 4 and work till 9.30 or 10 that night. Mm-hmm. Well, most of these 20-somethings, they're hitting the bars and going out and, you know, because we, we're, we're peers from all over in the industry, and we like to chat and talk and drink beer and, and stroke our ego. Right. So... So that's what they do, and and you're kind of forced to do that. And the next thing you know, it's it's midnight, and you're like, oh, I got to be at the course at two thirty. <laughs> so why stop? Just stay up. <laughs> We're a little old to be doing that anymore, Mark. We 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 can't do that anymore. <laughs> I, I've proven that. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that was interesting about what you were saying is the course is just so well maintained all along. Kevin Marsh, whom is another part of this show, uh, <clears throat> the amateur who played there said that very thing that uh, when uh, he was over there in January and February um, before he, before his tournament to get to play in, and he said, you know, it, it's the middle of January, and the course looks just like it does Masters Week. Right. You know, it was just – Right, and, that, and that's very accurate. It, it is. The, the only thing I would say that would be different is green speeds aren't so crazy. Well, and that's what he said. Uh, I was asking mm-hmm. Kevin – the hardest hole, blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, you know, really the thing about Augusta national is other than tournament week, it's a very playable golf course. He right. said, but during tournament week, the green speeds just make it, uh, he said it, that's the reason there have been very few rookies win the tournament. Cause it just takes uh-huh. so much knowledge to, uh, to know how to get around the golf course. Exactly. And, and, uh, my general manager, um, and I were talking about this yesterday. This uh, these new kids like Herman and these guys that are on tour. You know, this kid's playing good on tour right now, and he earned a spot in the Masters. But when you walk up on that first tee, and everybody's looking at you, and you look down that first fairway, and you, you're thinking, "Oh my God, Bobby yeah. Jones, Jagnick, yeah. Walter Hagen, you know, all these guys teed off from the same turf." Yeah, and they played in the same event. It, you know, your mind, and you know as well as I do, the most challenging, the most challenging mechanics in the golf swing is the seven inches between your ears. Oh, absolutely. 
So when that mindset kicks in, I mean, to this day, I've walked through those gates many, many, many times. But to this day, when I walk through what I call Six Flags, which is the souvenir area and the press conference area, when you walk through there and you, you come out to number one fairway, which is the low spot of number one fairway, and you look at that master scoreboard, and then you look up to the left where the clubhouse is, and number one tee, and then you look up to the right, and number one green sits on the perch, and you just get goosebumps. There's just no way not to get goosebumps. If you care about anything golf history related, that property will constantly give you goosebumps. Wow. Well, real quickly, talk about, I mean, because I would think that in your line of work, working at Augusta has got to be one of the top two, three jobs at, or places that everybody wants to work at some point in their career. So how, how did you find yourself working at, at Augusta? <laughs> I, I actually, um, it, it's right place, right time. I was doing golf course construction and I actually didn't get the job at Augusta national. I was doing some renovation work for Augusta state university. Um, and this somehow the right guy grabbed me. <laughs> I was doing, I built, um, I built and designed the Augusta State golf team's practice facility and did the renovation at Forest Hills Golf Club in Augusta, which a lot of people don't know this, but Bobby Jones, that's where he won his, uh, uh, grand slam to, to, um, right before he retired. I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. Forest Hills Golf Club. It's very historic. It's still open to this day. It's a wonderful golf course. Uh, and there's, uh, I mean, Bobby Jones sat there with Alistair McKenzie in that old clubhouse and, and drew up plans for Augusta National in that building. That's crazy. It, isn't there a golf course right next to Augusta? It seems like, like maybe behind number 12 green or something, you can see a fairway. Yep. That's that's Augusta Country Club. Okay. That is, uh, if you look down uh, Amen Corner, Amen Corner is shared with uh Number eight green Augusta Country Club, and then nine fairway runs just behind 12, and then uh, 10T jumps back over. If you're standing on 13T at Augusta National and you look to your left through the trees, you could actually see someone playing number 10 at Augusta Country Club. That's hilarious. I mean, it's hard to do because <laughs> there's so much foliage, <laughs> but um, it. And that's uh, that's the recent thing that that just come out, you know, wanting to extend thirteen. They want to buy some property from the country club, and um, and you know, move thirteen back. Which I have a very strong opinion about that. Yeah. Um, okay. And I figure since I got a platform, I'd like to share this because a lot of us uh, Go ahead. golf course management people like I think feel the same way. What makes Augusta National Augusta National is not the length. Okay. I was there when they lengthened 11 and added the trees on the right of 11 to tiger-proof the golf course. And I understand certain logistics because technology is better, the balls are better, the clubs are better. But what makes Augusta National Augusta National is trickery and in, in, in the design aspect of the golf course, the undulated greens, how the fairways slope a certain way and where the hazards are placed and the pine straw beds are placed. I just really don't understand why they have to back a, a par five up 25 to 28 yards that costs millions of dollars. I mean, 13 is a perfect par five. Yeah. Why, why, why lengthen it? I, I just don't understand it. A lot of us don't understand it. And of course it doesn't matter what we think, but, um, 
I just think Augusta National should be left exactly like Augusta National. You know, it's interesting that you bring up... And, of course, if Billy Payne hears this, he's probably going to call me later today. <laughs> the, the the thing that you bring up about lengthening the course, Kevin uh, Marsh actually played his time at Augusta was actually the first year after they lengthened the golf course. And uh-huh. when I asked him the hardest hole, he said, oh, without a doubt, number 11, because it was playing like yep. 525 from the back tees as a par four. And he said right. there's actually no there's no place to miss your any of your shots, whether it's the, the drive or, or coming in. I think he said he got lucky and parted the first day, and, and the second day he knocks it in the trees and makes double. Well, and one thing to consider, too, I mean, even if you jack one off that tee, say 350, you still have a downhill lie. Wow. And, and if you hit one 350, which is – I can't do it. I don't know if you can do it, but no, I can't do it. not even close. Uh, if, if you hit one 350, you're still 189 out. Yeah, and that's what Kevin was saying. He said, you know, you, you can pound a driver, but yet you still got a hybrid or a four-iron into the green, into a, a really difficult green to hit. Well, and that's what makes – see, this, this is what I was just going back to. Augusta National is Augusta National. The way you play that shot is you run it up in front of the green. But you, you know what's right in front of the green a big dead horse. There's a huge mound right there. Yeah. And, and, and it's getting bigger by the year cause it's being top dressed every year, every year, every year. It's coming up an inch every year. <laughs> wow. You know, what's, what's going to be funny, Mark, I think, um, you know, talking with everybody like you and, and Chris and Kevin, it, it's, it's hard on TV to understand the elevation changes. So if there's ever the perfect, uh, venue for 3d TV, the first time we start right. getting it, that's going to be, I think, uh, revolutionary to understand the undulations of the greens, the right, the right, elevation right. changes because they just all talk about some of the hills. I guess it was they were saying coming up nine is is uphill pretty strongly. Uh, nine is, but eleven will blow your mind. But going down into Amen Corner is not something you can even imagine. My wife, when when our daughter was born. In 2002, I'm sorry, 2004. Um, man, I can't believe it. I just forgot my daughter's birthday. I'll edit um, that out. Yeah, please. When um, when my daughter was born, um, my my daughter's born in late February, and then my wife said, "I, I want to go. I want to go to the tournament." I said, "Okay, come on." So I have her meet me at 10 p. And then we walked over. Back to the left of 10 is the cabins, and then back to 11 is maintenance, too. There's a huge nursery back in there. So we meet back in there, and then we go down to 11 Green. We come out. Uh, you know where Hogan Bridge is? We, there's a big uh, pump house station there. We walk down that way. We come in the okay. back way. And and she says, I want to go up to 15. Well, when you're on 11 Green mm-hmm. and you look up to 11 Fairway, you are literally looking up a 30-degree pitch. Really? It, it is that severe downhill. That severe. Wow. Um, 14 green, uh, which most people say, oh, that's pretty tame green. You can stand on the back of that green with your two feet on the putting surface. I can stand on the front right of that green with my two feet on the putting surface, mm-hmm. and we cannot see each other. What the heck? I mean, it, it's not TV can never TV can never do it justice. I mean, it, it's just it's amazing. It's it's nine green. Uh, you know, the slope from from back to front is just an amazing pitch. I mean, it's an amazing slope. Um, 
some of the pin placements, I mean, the, the, the committee and, and, um, John Anderson, who does the cups at Augusta national for the masters, they do an amazing job finding strategic pin placements, but most of them are what would be illegal to the normal golfer. <laughs> I just, I mean, it's just the slopes are unbelievable. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, man, that, that has to, uh, had to have been a great experience to, to sit there and watch the tournament and, and then listen to guys like me who watched on TV, just brag about the condition of the golf course and, and to hear the announcers do that and to know that you had a part in that. But also, yeah, I guess it was, a, some... it was a good part of my life. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it almost killed me, but, um, <laughs> you know, now, and I didn't just work there either. I, my primary job was, uh, building a, uh, sister club for Augusta national. We champions retreat golf club, okay. um, which, which was financed by the Augusta national golf partners. They, when they brought me on, my job was to build this golf course. Well, now, where is that and course, Mark? It's it's in Evans. It's about seven miles uh, north of Augusta National, right up Washington Road. Wow. It's uh, Nine holes were built by Jack Nicholas, nine by Gary Player, and nine by Arnold Palmer. No way. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and they specifically did their design. They There was no outs. You know, usually they send like a um, – a guy to, you know, come in and do architecture or whatever. No, nope. Jack did it. Arnold did it. And Gary did it. They worked with me personally. I had no contractors. There was no general contractor. I was the guy. I hired all the shapers. It was very detail oriented. Money was really not an option. Right. Um, how cool was uh, that? Oh yeah, it was very cool. And then that's, um, you know, when I say the job killed me, I mean, I was working from, I'd leave the house at four thirty in the morning, go there. I'd go back to the national about noon and then back out to my place. And then we would have construction meetings at 8 PM every night, seven days a week. So oh I was working, I was working, you know, four thirty AM to ten thirty eight PM every night. Well, actually those of us who grew up in, in North Alabama, like you and I did, we call that working mm-hmm. from can to can't. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and, and the work ethic that that instilled, I mean, I already had some sort of work ethic, but I mean, it, it holds true today. I mean, he, even here at Huntsville Country Club, my assistant Santo is here, you know, he's been here 15 years. Uh, we were here till what time did we leave last night? 830? Yeah, we left at 830 last night. Wow. Uh, you, you leave when the job's done. Yeah. Not, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Not when, uh. Not when the clock says, but you know, that, right. that, that's cool stuff. Mark, man, this has been so cool. Uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, glad to have you back in the, uh, in the area. And, uh, I'd love, ca- to, I'd love to see you out here playing some golf. Just give me a call, man. I would love to. Thanks, Mark. Have a good day, D. So there you have it. I hope that was a new view of Augusta. Uh, thanks to, uh, Kevin Marsh and Chris Bergrain and Mark Patterson for uh, sharing their very specific uh, points of view of Augusta. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a great time. I learned a lot. Uh, Some of those stories uh, I had never heard before. So uh, thanks so much to those guys. And hey, uh, do me a favor. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you could uh, do that and leave a a ranking or a review on iTunes, that would really help a lot. Uh, the more of those that we get, kind of the higher up in those rankings we get and the more men that we get out 
to uh, make an impact on because they get to listen to what we do here. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Modern Southern Gentleman Show.